All right. So this is the recording for class essentially five. Um, I don't have a recording currently for class four, which is the class on Jesus. He's kind of a big deal, uh, but it wasn't me who did it. So I ended up not redoing my notes at some point in the near future. I'll go back over those notes and redo them and then uh, prepare them. But I wanted to shoot a video for this particular class um, just to make sure you guys have a, a copy of it, obviously. And uh, this is uh, one of the longest lessons uh, compared with the next one, uh, which will be scripture and tradition. But it's one of the longest for a reason. Uh, as you're going through the process of RCIA, there may be a lot of things that you have questions about. There may be a lot of things that you don't fully understand. Maybe you don't quite get the Eucharist or you don't quite understand prayer of the saints or devotion to Mary. Um, you know, there's, there, or, there's so many different things under the sun that you can have questions about, you know, why do Catholics do this? Why do you do that? Uh, whatever it happens to be. And ultimately, it's all going to come down to the authority of the church and whether or not the church has the authority to make the decisions that she has or not. And that's what this class is all about. So if there was one class that you were to not miss, if there was one class that you wanted to make sure that you got, it would be this class. So here are the highlights. I begin with a quote from St. Paul, the house of the God, the household of God is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation or pillar and support of the truth. And here's the highlights we're going to cover today. Uh, first off, Jesus gave commands to do, not to write. In fact, Jesus, as far as we know, never wrote a single thing other than uh, one time when they bring to him the woman caught in adultery, he bends down and writes something in the dirt. And we don't even know what it is. He's just like tracing something into the into the ground. And it's not recorded what it was. And, and as far as you know, that's it. And again, and we'll talk about this next week, he never says, you know, write anything, but he gives commands, do this in memory of me, go and baptize, right? Uh, continuously, Jesus is giving commands for actions to be carried out. Uh, and particularly, he's giving actions and commands uh, for these actions to his apostles and his inner group of, of disciples, particularly his 12. He gives to the apostles a unique authority, and those apostles appoint other men to share that authority. Um, and they charge those men to do the same, passing the authority on in basic basically an unbroken line stretching from Jesus Christ to this very day. Jesus promises that his church would be visible and it would guide us into the knowledge of the truth protected by the Holy Spirit. This church is visible in every century, and it's called itself since the first century Catholic. This church is the dispenser of the sacraments, uh, the oldest human institution still in existence, protected by the Holy Spirit and the guardian of the truth. I saw a comic once, and I made my own version of it here. This is an original uh, Justin creation, and uh, I, I wanted to change it a little bit because I wanted to show this one big solid line all down the middle, uh, but the punchline is about the same as a guy looking at a bunch of branches on a uh, on a board, and he says, you know, circling one little spot over here, and he says, aha, and this, this is where, you know, we, our denomination was formed, and we finally got theology and the Bible, right? And that's how a lot of people approach Christianity. Either that or they just assume, well, you can't get it all right, but you get close enough, and, and you know, you just kind of hope for the rest. And honestly, there's something to that. Um, we know that God is just and merciful. And he doesn't fault us for what we don't know, but that doesn't mean he doesn't want us to know the truth. In fact, Jesus very famously says uh, that he come to give us the truth, that the truth might set us free. And if that's the case, then it seems to be that he would want us to know what the truth is and gave us the ability. And so if you were to actually look at Christian history, this is what it would look like. And you would see one consistent line running all the way down the middle. And that's the line we call the Catholic Church. In the early church, you would see a few little offshoots that would last a little while and then go out. You'd have your various heretical groups your donatists, your um, docetists, your, your monophysists, your, uh, one of your bigger ones would be the Arians, right? They, they persisted a good long while. I think the Arian heresy kind of ran its course over about five to 700 years, depending upon how you want to reckon it. So it was a long lasting uh, heresy. And then, um, but you still had this unity of the church until about 1054. And that's when the Orthodox split from the Catholic church. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And then, but it was still essentially the same. And honestly, if you look at all of these, they all teach basically the same thing. The only thing they have a question about is whether or not the Bishop of Rome, the successor of Peter, the Pope has authority over the church or not. Um, even though we can find uh, evidence 
uh, you know, in the time before this in church councils and letters and everything else, uh, that that was in fact the belief of the early church. And we'll have some of that in this class. And then you get to 1517, Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg. And then of course you have um, from there, all of the uh, different denominations that split off during the Protestant Reformation or Revolution. As some people have called it the Protestant deformation, because it really does. And I don't want to be pejorative necessarily when I say that, but it does deform Christianity uh, and and what it means uh, to be Christian in a lot of ways. So we'll talk a little bit more about this next week as well. So again, this is going to be a constant theme. But first off, what is the church, right? Um, what What is the church? The church is the fulfillment of the spousal love of God for his people. And it's the, the, the covenant role of the bride. It is the church and the bridegroom, which is Christ. Um, thus, Paul tells us in, in Ephesians, no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is a profound one, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the church in scripture, the term for the church is ecclesia. It means those who've literally been called out. So in a sense, it's those who have been called out of the world. And one of the most important um, scriptural hallmarks of the church is that it is one and it is unified. Um, Jesus himself prays that the, that the church would be one even as he and and the Father are one. Each person in the church has different gifts um, given to support and help the church grow, but the church is one. The church is the body of Christ. Again, as Paul says, you are the body of Christ and members of it individually. Um, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all of the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. Now you are the body of Christ and members of it individually. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles and healers and helpers and administrators and speakers in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? I like how Paul, he gives you these rhetorical questions. The answer to those is clearly no. Uh, not everyone is an apostle. Not everyone is a prophet or a teacher. Not everyone works miracles, but some people are. Some people do. Also in Ephesians, he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, and his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the full stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning of men, by their craftiness in deceitful wiles. So basically the church is given to us so that we don't fall prey to false doctrine. Like literally that's what that just said. The church is given to help us uh, and to guide us via the Holy Spirit into truth. Jesus himself makes this promise in John 14 and 16. And I will pray that the Father will give you another counselor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring you to the remembrance of all that I have said to you. I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
So we are called to follow the Spirit of the Lord, and the Spirit leads us in unity. As Paul says in Philippians, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any solace in love, any participation in the Spirit, any compassion and mercy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, with the same love, united in heart, and thinking one thing. So again, Unity, 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 unity. This is the constant theme. And it's one that I think a lot of Christians miss today, um, which I think is a real poverty in the church. And this was the practice of the early church as well. Here's a, a bishop of the church, of the martyr church in, in 180 AD. This is Irenaeus of Lyon. In a, in a long doctrine uh, document called Against Heresies, uh, and he says, this, as I said before, the church, having received this preaching and this faith, although she is disseminated throughout the whole world, this is in the first 200 years of Christianity, but although she is disseminated throughout the whole world, yet she guarded it as if she occupied one house. She likewise believes things just as she had but one soul and one in the same heart, and harmoniously she proclaims them and teaches them and hands them down as if she had but one mouth. For while the languages of the world are diverse, nevertheless, the authority of the tradition is one and the same. I absolutely love that quote. And again, one, 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 one. Again, as if she has one soul, one heart, one mouth, one voice, one house, you know, all of these are uh, pointing to the fact that the church is meant to be one. And thus, because of the unity of the church and its visible visibleness, St. Paul can call the church the pillar and the foundation of the truth. It's that quote that I began this with uh, from 1 Timothy 3.15. Uh, he can call it this because it has authority, and that authority is rooted in Christ and his promise to the church, um, which he was establishing throughout his ministry, uh, giving authority to his apostles. So here's where we see the calling of the apostles. Um, first off, Jesus has this line. He says it in, in Luke 5 and, and Mark 2. Um, he says, you know, no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost and so are the skins. But new wine is for, for fresh skins. This is a weird parable and it's something that we don't deal with on a, a regular basis these days. Um, but the idea behind this is you would use usually a part of an animal like a bladder, uh, the stomach uh, particularly, or the actual bladder of the animal uh, as a wide skin. And you would put fresh new wine before it had fully form fermented into the bladder. And the reason you do that is because a bladder can stretch. Um, and so you would put it in there and cork it up and the bladder, as the wine fermented and gave off gases, it would expand and the bladder would stretch as well. And when the bladder was done stretching, the, the wine was done fermenting usually. Um, and then you would you know, pour the wine out and drink the wine. And then you would have a, a skin left over for, for water. But there's a limit to how far the, the bladder can stretch. And so uh, if you were to take one of those uh, bladders that had been used, one of those wine skins that had been uh, used to ferment wine the first time around, and then use it a second time, uh, you would wind up bursting the wine skin. And so Jesus kind of gives us this way as a way of understanding what he's doing. He's taking everything that came before. Again, he's the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament uh, pointed towards, and he's making it new. And one of the things is uh, you know, he, he'll look around and we'll see this in a minute. Um, the, the apostles, um, he's going to appoint them as basically the new hierarchy because the old hierarchy was not doing their job. In fact, we read this, uh, paralleling Moses, he's going to call his 12. Um, this is from Matthew, the end of Matthew nine and into Matthew 10. Um, this is it's a seamless uh, verse. It's just where the chapter happens to break. Remember those chapter lines and even the verse lines, none of those were original to the text. So this is just literally how this would read. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, that the Lord of the heart of harvest will send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every infirmity. The names of the twelve apostles were these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas the tax, and, and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. He gives them the authority to preach and to heal. And preach as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. He gives them authority to forgive sins, 
Jesus says to them, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, even so I send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. He's giving authority to his twelve to bring about a ministry of reconciliation. And he gives them authority to bind and to loose. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, he says, to his twelve in Matthew 18. We're going to look at this a little bit further uh, because Matthew 16 actually goes a little bit further into what this authority means. But this authority is unique, and it's it's prefigured by the Pharisees who sit on the seat of Moses. Uh, and thus the Israelites were actually o- obliged to obey them even though they were not doing their job, right? Uh, he just said up, up here, you know, he saw that they were like sheep without shepherds um, at the beginning in Matthew 9. Well, in Matthew 23, we see the scribes and the Pharisees says, Jesus, they sit on the seat of Moses. Uh, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move a finger or not move move them with their finger. So literally, there's that binding authority. They have the ability to make declarations as to what the people should be doing in general. Now, he's taking this authority from them. Um, uh, but the point is, they retain this authority um, because not not because of their own righteousness, but because of the authority in which they uh, they reside, which is the the seat of Moses. And we're going to see we're going to come back to this concept a little bit later. Um, anyway, so. The apostles, Jesus calls to them, he gives them authority. They become the foundation of the new kingdom. Uh, and we see this in lots of places. There's actually a couple places in scripture that call the apostles the foundation. Uh, one of them is, is actually in the book of Revelation, uh, where we see the, the spirit. He carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And the walls of the city had 12 foundations and on them, the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. And one of the apostles is the foundation of the rest, but more on that here in a minute. But first, apostolic succession. The apostles passed on their authority to successors. In fact, this is the very first thing the apostles do uh, in the book of Acts uh, after Jesus uh, ascends into heaven is they appoint a successor for the office of Judas. Uh, We read from, from Acts chapter one, in those days, Peter stood up among the brethren the company of persons in all was about 120. And he said, brethren, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who was a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted a share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. It's a nice and gruesome picture. Uh, and it became known uh, to all uh, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So that field was called in their language, a keldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation become desolate and let there be no one to live in it, but also his office, let another take. Um, and, and the word for office there is episcopate, uh, episcopain. Um, and in fact, in the uh, in the, the King James Version, it's translated as his bishopric, because that's literally what the, the Episcopal office is, is the office of the bishops. Um, and so they cast lots. It falls to a man named Matthias um, to take over the uh, position of uh, of Judas, but we'll see that this Episcopal office gets passed on to others. And we see even in the New Testament, other men who are ordained to the Episcopate, including Timothy and, and Titus. And so the church in the first century, the church, the early church is composed of bishops, uh, episcopoi, priests, presbyteroi, and deacons. The the bishops are the overseers. Literally, the word episcopoi means the overseer, uh, like a scope, like a telescope, and epi, like a, the epicenter of a of a of an earthquake, right? Uh, so these are the overseers, and they're the ones who have the the principal authority. Um, Again, the word for Judas's office is episcopoi, right? His episcopate. So we see that the apostles pass on this authority. But they also have those that they ordain to help them. Uh, the often called uh, either presbyters or sometimes you'll see it translated as elders. Literally, the English word priest is just a contraction of presbyteroi. Um, and so they have certain authority, particularly administering the sacraments. And then there's helpers, uh, the diaconoi. Um, and we see these particularly in, in uh, Acts 5, uh, Stephen, amongst others. The first martyr is uh, one of the early deacons of the church. Thus, we see that Jesus' church has, from the very beginning, an, a hierarchy. 
right? And a hierarchy of, of authority, bishops, priests, and deacons, and they can all trace their lineage back to Peter and the apostles. Um, we can see that this is clearly the model of the early church. Uh, and to make sure that the apostolic tradition we passed on after this, Paul tells Timothy, uh, one of the bishops, what you have heard from me before many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So he's actually referring to four generations himself and Timothy, the people Timothy's going to teach and the people they're going to teach. And it's this idea of this oral knowledge being passed down. It's what you've heard from me before many witnesses and trust to faithful men. So is this, this level of, um, I guess you would say, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Shoot. <laughs> um, it keeps you in a sense, keeps you honest, keeps you, the, the testimony is, is verified. I guess verifiability is the word I'm looking for, um, because this is the, the public knowledge of the church. And the early church understood this. The early church lived this. Thus, we see Clement, who's a bishop of Rome, um, in the four, in the first century, running around 98 AD, writes this, uh, and thus preaching throughout the countries and cities, they appointed the first fruits of their labors, uh, having first proved them by the spirit to be bishops and deacons of those who should afterwards believe. Nor was this a new thing, for indeed many ages before it was written concerning bishops and deacons. Thus saith the scriptures, at a certain place I will appoint their bishops in righteousness and their deacons in faith. Our apostles knew through the Lord Jesus Christ, that there would be strife on account of the office of the episcopate. So for this reason, therefore, inasmuch as they had obtained a perfect foreknowledge of this, they appointed those ministers already mentioned and afterwards gave instruction that when they should fall asleep or other approved men that when they should fall asleep, other approved men should succeed them in their ministry. For our sin will not be small if we eject from the episcopate those who have been blamelessly and holily fulfilling, fulfilled its duties. Basically, he's saying uh, that the apostles established people to um, be the episcopates. And in fact, sometimes like Peter would often uh, establish two or three people at a time so that they knew that if, if somebody died, the next person would just succeed them. And so Peter actually gives rise, for instance, um, in... In Rome, uh, he, he appoints a guy named Linus, after him Cletus, and after him Clement, right? Anacletus, uh, and then Clement. And so Clement's actually the third person ordained uh, by by Peter. Uh, and here we see Ignatius, the Bishop of Antioch, also an appointee of Peter when he was in Antioch. Uh, he writes this, see that you follow the Bishop, the, uh, the Episcopoi, even as Christ Jesus follows the Father and the Presbyters as you would the Apostles. Do ye reverence the deacons and those that carry out the appointment of God? Let no man do anything connected with the church without the bishop. Let that be deemed a proper Eucharist, which is administered either by the bishop or by one whom he has entrusted to it. Wherever the bishop shall appear, there let the multitude be by the bishop or by one whom he has entrusted it. Wherever the bishop shall appear, there let the multitude be, even as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. A quick side note. The church is called Catholic. By the end of the first century, uh, an Ignatius letter uh, above here is uh, proof of this. Uh, it was actually in Antioch that the church was first called Christian in Acts 11, which is a very apt phrase, one that Peter uses himself, uh, Christianion, uh, Christianos. <laughs> uh, but the word, uh, it basically means those who are followers of, of Christ. It actually was... Um, it was put on the church in a sense, uh, but again, not a, not an unapt term. It was a way for the Jews to differentiate these followers of this uh, crucified supposed Messiah uh, from themselves, the, the, the true Jews. But the, the word that the church usually used, and we see up here in uh, you know the end of first century, Ignatius on his way to be martyred by the lions, he uses this word, and he's not coining a term. He's not like, I'm calling this thing the Catholic Church. He's just like, no, there's the Catholic Church. It was a given by the time of Ignatius. It was used in in, in speech as a, as a normal turn of phrase, and we'll see over and over and over again. Um, in fact, I end these notes with a great quote from Augustine, uh, but it just was the term for the church because it means universal, and it showed the overall mission of the church uh, being being the church for all, right? The, the universal church. Nevertheless, apostolic succession was the proof against 
heresies. Um, this is from Tertullian in uh, around 200. If there's any heresies, I love this line. If there's any heresies bold enough to plant their origin in the midst of the apostolic age, that they may thereby seem to have been handed down by the apostles because they existed at the time of the apostles. We can say this, let them produce the original records of their churches. Let them unfold, un unfold the role of their bishops running down in due succession from the beginning in such a manner that their first bishop shall be able to show for his ordainer and predecessor some one of the apostles or other apostolic men, a man moreover who continued steadfast with the apostles. For this is the manner in which the apostolic churches transmit their registers as the church in Smyrna, which records that Polycarp was, was placed therein by John, and uh, also the church in Rome, which makes Clement to have been ordained in a like manner by Peter, that same Clement that we read just a minute ago. Uh, so this is from 200 AD, and this is how you told who was a heretic and who wasn't. This is the proof of the church, even before there was a Bible that you could turn to. Now, I mentioned above that one of the apostles is even more of a foundation than others. And obviously, if you know anything about the church, I'm going to tell you that's Peter. Uh, Peter is very unique amongst the apostles. Uh, and he's singled out by Jesus in a lot of different places, as well as by the other gospel writers, by Paul, and even by the early church as being unique. Jesus makes a promise to Peter, says, You are rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The most important passage comes two chapters before the other 11 apostles, along with Peter, are given that binding and loosing authority above uh, in Matthew 18, and it's from Matthew 16. So when Jesus gives them that authority in Matthew 18, he's hearkening back to something he's already done with Peter, and it goes like this. When Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that the Son of Man is? This is Jesus. Who do men who do people say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Jesus, or sorry, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the, the, the Messiah, the anointed, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is heaven in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So first off, Peter is the rock upon which Jesus is building his church. Uh, the word play is a little less apparent in English because we don't use the word Peter to mean rock. Generally, though you might hear it in the word, um, sometimes there's an archaic phrase, salt Peter, which just means rock salt, basically. But you don't see it otherwise. If this was French, you'd say, uh, uh, Jesus says, you are Pierre, and upon this Pierre, I would build my church, right? Because Pierre is the, the French word for Peter, and they retain the word uh, for rock. Uh, if you look at it in Greek, you can see it more clearly. Peter is Petros, and uh, the word for, for rock here is Petra. And you'll notice the ending is a little bit different. And the reason is because the word Petra is the root word, and that's feminine. And so Christ is promising to build his church and he's changing Peter's name to the rock. And he wants this to be a strong, powerful name. So he doesn't want to accidentally name him Mrs. Rock. <laughs> so rather than calling him Petra, he simply changes the feminine ending Petra to Petros, uh, thus making Peter um, the rock. Now, some people will make the claim that the word Petros is a Greek word that means a little stone or a little pebble. Um, but in fact, you'll find that that is a distinction that existed in um, Attic Greek and Classic Greek, but it's really not one that we can find in any records of, of Koine Greek as existing at the time. And in fact, there was another term um, that would mean a little rock, and that would simply be the common term lithos, uh, which uh, Protestant scholar D.A. Carson, in fact, is going to point out here in just a minute, uh, would have been the much more reasonable term to use. But we also know that Jesus is calling him Peter in a unique way, because the, the very first time that Jesus meets Peter, he gives him that name, and he gives him the name in Aramaic. And we see this in John's gospel. In the very first part of John's gospel, John 1 verse 42 is where this actually happens. 
Um, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him, this is John the Baptist, uh, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. I love that, that he does this multiple places. Um, he, he translates a word for you into Greek uh, in case you don't know it. So he's given the, the Hebrew word and then he translates it into Greek. We found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Cephas is a transliteration of a, an Aramaic term, which is the language that they spoke. Um, the, the other word would have been kepha, K-E-P-H-A. And in Aramaic, kepha is just the word for a big rock. So Jesus would have actually said, you are kepha, and upon this kepha, I will build my church. The word for a small rock or a pebble in Aramaic is the word evna. And, uh, you know, if, if Jesus was trying to contrast Simon, uh, the rock, uh, with you know, the, the rock of his faith or his profession, what well, would have made more sense for him to call him Simon Evan, right? Rather than Simon Peter. But instead, it's very, very clear that he is calling Peter the rock. And as uh, Carson says, had Matthew wanted to say no more than that Peter was a stone in contrast to Jesus, the rock, the more common word would have been lithos, stone of almost any size. There then there would have been no pun, and that's just the point. Yet if it were not for the Protestant reactions against the extremes of Roman Catholic interpretation, it's doubtful whether many would have ever taken rock to mean anything but Peter. So uh, he actually points out um, that the reason most Protestants are so inclined to try to read into this, the idea that uh, Peter is actually being insulted here uh, is the fact that they need to reject the office of the Pope. They need to reject Petrine primacy. Uh, and so they they make that claim. But if you come back up here to Jesus's words, what you'll find here, this is actually a threefold blessing. And it actually follows a pattern. And I realized very recently that it actually follows a, a much more unique pattern than I thought. I thought it was a blessing followed by an explanation, but it's actually a blessing followed by two parts of explanation. So it's like blessing, duh, duh, blessing, duh, duh, blessing. And that shows you very clearly how this whole thing uh, works out. So Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of, of John, or Simon Bar-Jonah, the, the Aramaic word for son of is just Bar. Um, there's a guy in scripture named Bar-Timaeus. Um, we're told it's a man named Bartimaeus, also called the son of Timaeus. So, and he's, he's a very, very poor man. I always thought the joke there is, I once knew a man who was so poor, he couldn't even afford a name. <laughs> but blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So why are you blessed? Because flesh and blood is not revealed to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. Why? Because on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I give you the keys to the kingdom. Why? Or that, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. So it goes A, B, B, A, B, B, A, B, B, right? Blessing, explanation, explanation. Blessing, explanation, part one, explanation, part two. Blessing, explanation, part one, explanation, part two. So very, very clearly, uh, Jesus is giving a preeminent authority to Simon in this passage. And he gives him the keys to the kingdom. And you'll notice in Matthew 18, when he gives a similar binding and loosing authority to the other apostles, he doesn't give that the, the keys to the kingdom. So what do the keys mean? Well, we know that Jesus is the fulfillment of the, the son of David, right? Uh, David was told that one of his um, descendants would reign indefinitely, reign in, in perpetuity. Uh, when um, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, uh, uh, the the words are you know today in the house of David right uh, he will be he will sit on the throne of his father David right that's the the words uh, of the angel identifying Jesus as you know the 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 shoot from the stump of Jesse and all these other these other Davidic images which are going to become very very commonplace in the next uh, about a month from now when we hit Advent uh, we start kind of entering into this this period of of longing and looking towards the kingdom. But so in the, in, in the Davidic kingdom, the role of the king was usually to actually be away, fighting to protect his people and, 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 and protect his kingdom. And in his stead, he would leave ministers. In fact, the, the, with David, we're told the, the one time he got into trouble, uh, his, his men were out fighting. He wasn't. He was, he was uh, walking around on the roofs of the palace and he looks down and sees a pretty girl, Bathsheba, and says, hey, you know, hubba hubba. And he winds up falling into adultery and actually winds up having her husband murdered. So, you know, even, even David, this man after the heart of God, 
was uh, still a very fallible man who could make some pretty egregious uh, issues. But anyway, so the king's job was to be away, fighting to protect his people. And in his stead, he would leave ministers who would run the kingdom with the king's authorities. But sometimes there would be disputes, right? And so how do you how do you solve a problem? How do you solve a, solve a dispute amongst the the ministers of the king without the king being there? Well, you would elevate one of those ministers, um, making them essentially the prime minister, and you would elevate them with some sort of a symbol of authority. And can you guess what the symbol of that authority was? It was the key to the kingdom that was given to the prime minister. And we can even see this in scripture. Uh, we can see a defrocking ceremony uh, prophetically recorded in Isaiah twenty two, which foreshadows all of this. And you're going to hear that exact power, the binding and loosing and everything, right? Um, I will sh- I will thrust you, Shebna, the, the unfaithful steward, from your office in a, in, in a similar way to the way that the scribes and the Pharisees are being sh- being thrusted from their office as stewards of the, the covenant, right? You'll be cast down from your station. And on that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, son of Zilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe. I will bind him, your girdle upon him, and I will commit your authority into his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Jerusalem and the house of Judah, and I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. I will fasten him like a peg in a sure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house, and they will hang on him the whole weight of his father's house, the offspring and the issue, every small vessel from all the cups and all the flagons, etc. So the idea of the the holder of this office was going to be a perpetual holder who would be a father to all of the people. What do we call the Pope? Holy Father, right? Uh, he'll be fastened as a sure spot. Whatever he opens, no one will shut. Whatever he shuts, no one will open. This is what Jesus says to Peter. Whatever you bind on earth will already be bound in heaven. You know, and he's speaking not just of an earthly kingdom, hence there's two keys. You know, it's not just the, the king of the king of the kingdom of David on earth. And it's not just the heavenly kingdom, but it's both. So he gets the keys to the kingdom as opposed to the key to the kingdom. Um, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. And notice also, this is an office. And what do you know about an office? Offices outlast the office holder, the presidency. I mean, unless the office holder is just absolutely terrible, right? <laughs> the presidency outlasts the president, the CEO uh, office outlasts the CEO of a business. Uh, and the holder of this particular office would be outlasted by his office, which persisted as did the offices of all of the apostles, which we've already discussed above. And the authority of the keys, it's the authority to bind and loose or to open and shut. And we think of keys as being very common. I carry in my pocket right now some keys, uh, keys to my house, keys to my car. Um, you know, I actually don't have a lot of keys these days. I only have, I only have two, uh, but I used to have like 15, you know, for all, I even had a, a job. I had keys to the door and keys to the vault, keys to the back office. I would have, you know, the keys everywhere. And keys were a sign of authority. So when I had that job, uh, the keys were in fact a sign of authority. I have a key to this room, right? It means I have the authority to 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 be in this room. But keys were a lot less common uh, 2000 years ago because modern machining methods simply didn't exist. And so if you had someone make a key in a lock, they had to specifically set out to make the key and to make the lock. And most people didn't have money for that, right? It just wasn't even at all practical. So the idea of, of holding a key is something, you know, that in previous eras meant a lot more than it means to us now, or at least the, um, the imagery of the symbolism is kind of lost to us in an era when keys are far more ubiquitous. But so Jesus is the son of Jesse. He's the, the stump, the, the shoot from the stump of, of Jesse. And any first century Jew, even if you thought Jesus was a fraud, even if you thought he was out of his mind, totally off his rocker, you would understand the import of having your inner 12 and then giving to one of them the keys to the kingdom and giving him the authority to bind and to loose. You would say, oh, this nut job is making that guy his prime minister. I don't buy it, but that's what he's doing. That's what you would say. Whether you believed, and obviously if you believe Jesus, you would understand what, what he was doing, you know, in truth. He was establishing his church and giving them authority. Uh, and again, this is evident all throughout scripture that Peter is given unique authority. Peter is always listed first in the list of the apostles. Judas, incidentally, is always listed last. And in fact, in Matthew's list above, he calls Peter first. Peter is mentioned by name around 191 times. The next most common apostle is St. John, who's listed around 40. And if you add up John and all the other, the 10 other remaining apostles together, they're listed less than Peter is listed. So Peter is listed more often than all of the other apostles combined. 
Peter alone is given a new name that supplants his birth name. Um, now, a few other people given names. In fact, giving a new name sometimes is a way of showing uh, change or, or authority from Abram to being called Abraham, from Jacob being called Israel. Uh, all the way up to, you know, Paul uh, seems to take on the, the name Paul from Saul, which was his Hebrew name, though there's actually a, a lot of evidence that suggests he probably already had both names. It's just a, a, a romanization of his original name, um, showing his ministry was to the Gentiles, not to the Jews. And we do see that James and John are called Bonarges, which means the sons of thunder. But we, we only see this referenced once in scripture, and that doesn't seem to supplant their names in the way that Peter's name does. So Peter alone is given a, a name by Christ, and he's told um, that that name connects him with Christ and makes him the foundation upon which the church is built. So all of the apostles are the foundations of the church, but uh, Peter specifically is is very uniquely the foundation upon which the church would be built. Peter alone is told by Christ that he would pray particularly for him at the Last Supper. Uh, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you all like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren, because he knows he's about to deny him. In fact, the next line is, uh, as he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and even to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you three times have denied that you know me. So Jesus even knew that Peter was going to have weak faith for the moment. But he says, when you have turned back or when you turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Peter is uniquely given the role of strengthening his brothers. Uh, we see Peter is regarded by the Jews as the leader and the spokesperson of, of, of all of the Christians. He's often singled out. Um, he's also regarded by just the common people as well uh, in this sort of a fashion. And in fact, there's a list of 50 different New Testament proofs put together by a guy named David Armstrong, who I'm a big fan of. Um, he actually has like another hundred, another 50 after this or whatever. If you follow the link, it is um, case sensitive. But if you follow this link, uh, you can be more of those. But then we see the, the writings of the early church as well. Um, the epistle of uh, Pope Clement of Rome. Um, again, writing somewhere around 8980 to 10180, depending upon who you see dating it. Um, it says this, the church of God which sojourns at Rome to the church of God which sojourns at Corinth. If anyone disobeys the things which have been said by him through us, let them know that they will involve themselves in transgression and in no small danger. So he is speaking in a way, kind of like Paul does to the Corinthians, and he's giving commands that they have to obey, even though he's not their regional bishop. Um, you know, one thing I'm realizing I haven't put in here is the fact that the church worked in a conciliar fashion in the early church. So we would see, uh, like in Acts 15, the, the Council of Jerusalem, um, the church would oftentimes meet together in order to decide something. And even at the Council of Jerusalem, Peter is the one who gives the proclamation that when he gives it, basically everyone shuts up after that. And and then they're in James's territory. It's not a it's not a ecumenical council it's just a, a local council but it, he gives the the rubric that then decides you know the way that the whole church goes basically you know the the gentiles don't need to first become jews they they don't have to be circumcised that was the big question uh which i think most of them are very happy to hear um the point is they don't have to become jews in order to become christians because christianity is supplanting and replacing the, the old covenant um here we see Irenaeus again writing 180 uh, 180 AD. Uh, since, however, it would be very tedious in such a volume as this to reckon up the succession of all the churches, we do put to confusion all those who, in whatever manner, by an evil self-pleasing, by vainglory, or by blindness and perverse opinion, assemble in unauthorized meetings. We do this, I say, by indicating that tradition derived from the apostles of the very great and very ancient and universally known church found in organization and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul, as also by pointing out the faith preached to men, which comes down to our times by means of the succession of bishops. For it is a matter of necessity that every church should agree with this church on account of its preeminent authority. That is, the faithful everywhere, inasmuch as the apostolic tradition has been preserved continuously by those faithful men who exist everywhere. Um, sorry, I'm just doing some cleanup as I'm dictating here. There we go. Uh, Tertullian writes, Peter, who is called the rock in which the church should be built, who has also obtained the keys to the kingdom of heaven, etc., etc. Um, Cyprian, uh, I think of Carthage. 
Uh, yeah. Uh, in 251 AD says, Thou art Peter, upon this rock I build my church. It is on him that Jesus, he builds the church, and to him that he entrusts the, to feed the sheep. Jesus says this three different times in, in the end of John's gospel. Jesus, or Simon, do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And although he assigns a like power to all the apostles, yet he founded a single chair. And the Latin word for this is cathedra. So when the Pope speaks ex cathedra from the chair, he speaks with the authority of Peter, thus establishing by his own authority, the source and hallmark of the church's oneness. I love this. I love this line. I meant to bold these earlier. If a man does not, if a man does not fast to this oneness of Peter, does he still imagine that he holds the faith? If he deserts the chair of Peter upon whom the church was built, has he still confidence that he is in the church? And here we see the uh, Victor I of Rome, Bishop of Rome, um, Pope, obviously, uh, writes this. Thereupon, Victor, so he he's claiming authority, who presided over the church at Rome, immediately attempted to cut, oh, this is actually from Eusebius, uh, immediately attempted to cut off from the common unity the parishes of all of Asia with the churches that agreed with them as heterodox. And he therefore wrote letters and declared all of his brethren there wholly excommunicate. So his, his authority was such that he could excommunicate other people from the church. Um, here we see uh, Stephen the first, uh, in a letter to Cyprian, uh, I believe of Carthage, the same Cyprian, uh, Stephen who see that he, who so boasts of the place of his episcopate and contends that he holds the succession from Peter on whom the foundations of the church were laid. Stephen who announces that he holds by succession, the throne of Peter. Um, so this is somebody, it's actually Fermian writing to Cyprian about uh, Pope Stephen. That's what it was. Um, and against the, the claims that many of our Eastern, Eastern Orthodox brothers will say, early church councils reflected this too. Um, so from the Council of Sardicia, uh, this is 343, 334, or 344. Bishop Gaudentius said, it seems good to you. Uh, I'm just going to read the important parts. You guys are welcome to go back and see these notes. There's a lot of quotes here. Unless the Bishop of Rome judge and render a decision as to this, right? So uh, he's talking about the appointing of new bishops uh, and that it's not settled unless the Bishop of Rome makes this decision. Um, this is from the Council of Ephesus and 431, about a century later, Philip Presbyter and Legate of the Apostolic See said, There is no doubt, and in fact, there has it has been known in all ages that the holy and most blessed Peter, prince and head of the apostles, pillar of the faith, foundation of the Catholic Church, received the keys to the kingdom from our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior and Redeemer of the human race, and that to him was given the power of loosing and binding sins. Our holy and most blessed Pope Celestine, the bishop, is accordingly to do order his successor and holds his place. Accordingly, the decision of all the churches is firm, for the priests of the Eastern and Western Church are present. Wherefore, Nestorius, this was against Nestorianism, uh, knows that he was alienated from the communion of the priests of the Catholic Church. Uh, Nestorius said that Jesus had, um, was it? Uh, he wasn't fully God and fully man. I think it was like half and half or whatever. Nestorianism is a, is a heresy in the church. Um, here we see the Council of Chalcedon uh, in 451. So another 20 years later, where for the most holy and blessed Leo, Archbishop of the great and elder Rome, through us and through this present most holy synod, together with the thrice blessed and all glorious Peter, the apostle, who is the rock and the foundation of the Catholic church and the foundation of the Orthodox faith, has stripped him of the episcopate and has alienated him of all hieraic worthiness. Therefore, let this most holy and great synod sentence the before-mentioned Dioscorus to the canonical penalties. So again, just speaking and speaking, I maybe I'll delete this one because it's less poetic than these other ones, but it just shows that the early church and the early church councils understood the primacy of the Bishop of Rome. Even to this day, the office of Peter is in fact the one thing that unites all Christians in a sense, because while they don't agree on anything else, um, you can find Protestant sects who believe everything. If you want to count the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll deny that Jesus was God. Um, you know, you can find them that will teach that this, the Eucharist is just a symbol, that it's fully the body and blood of Jesus. You can find them that teach anything under the sun. That's why there's different denominations, right? Um, but the one thing they all agree on is that the Pope ain't the Pope. That's the one symbol of unity in all Christendom. 
Now, note, this doesn't mean that popes are perfect or sinless or they can't make a mistake or even fall into personal heresy, uh, but it does mean that God protects his church from teaching error and that we are obliged, therefore, to follow the church that he founded or else risk being disobedient to Christ. Uh, Fresh scripture says, he who believes in the Son of God has eternal life, but who, who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God rests upon him. So part of that obedience is following the church that he founded. It's important to know also there's a scriptural precedent that authority is not withdrawn simply because of misdeeds. Thus, uh, David respects King Saul even when he turns wicked. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in uh, the um, in the Old Testament is Saul is pursuing David and wants to kill him. And at one point, uh, he has David trapped in the in the mountains, but in the middle of the night, David escapes and walks right up to sleeping Saul and cuts off one of the tassels of his cloak and like takes his water jar and puts a spear by his head to show that he could have taken him, that God had delivered you over to my, my authority. And he even repents of that. He said, I shouldn't have even done that because... I shouldn't, I shouldn't ever lay a finger on God's anointed, even though at this point, David was already God's anointed too. But nevertheless, King Saul, even the wicked, uh, David was unwilling to lay a finger on. Um, Caiaphas, this is amazing, uh, but Caiaphas was the leader of the Sanhedrin, and he prophecies, he gives that line, it's greater that one man should die than that a whole nation should perish, uh, literally as he's condemning Jesus to death. And then John tells us that he was able to prophecy uh, because he was the high priest that year. And and as we read earlier, Jesus speaks of the scribes and the Pharisees sitting on the seat of Moses and having an obligation, uh, the obligation of the Jews to heed those occupying it, regardless of the behavior of those in office, because it was ordained by God, even as Jesus is, of course, taking that authority away. And it's finally wrested from them and given to the apostles when the Holy Spirit comes uh, at, at, at Pentecost. So infallibility belongs to the church, and it refers to matters of faith and morals, and it means the church teaches with the authority of God. Whatever the church binds on earth is already bound in heaven. Um, it's not infallible on personal actions. It's not infallible on sports scores, right? There's lots of things that the church is not fallible on. And even Peter himself could sin after being being made Peter after being made the Pope. Uh, at one point, he he fears the circumcised, and Paul rebukes him publicly. Whether this was a good idea or not is, is questionable, uh, but Paul is very clear uh, that he did, in fact, uh, rebuke Peter. So I'm trying to... I don't know why that won't go to lowercase, but that's life, I guess. There we go. Um, and that's actually one of the few times uh, in Scripture in a list of, of people that Peter isn't listed first. And it's literally like the, the sentence that precedes the fact that Paul goes up to Peter and and uh, chides him publicly. Uh, so he doesn't list him first there. And then there's one other time Peter isn't listed first, but he's actually listed right behind or right in front of Jesus. And so Paul gives like an – he says – he gives a listing of people including himself, another man named Apollos, and then Peter, and then Christ. And so he actually lists them in like reverse order because he always calls himself the least of the apostles. And so he actually gives you, you – know, here's the least of the apostles, me. Here's a regular apostle, Apollos. Um, here is Peter, the chief of the apostles, and here's Jesus from whom all the authority comes, right? Um, and so he, he lists Peter not first there. But every other time in Scripture, Peter is listed first. Uh, and so – infallibly belongs to the church when she speaks in a public way, either in a church council or through an ex-cathedra statement from the chair, which is up here, uh, the the line that we used up here in, in, in Latin is cathedra uh, from, from the chair. So what's the implication of all this? Well, the implication of all this is, again, there's only one church. And this church has existed. This church has existed in an unbroken form, passed down from one man to the next since the beginning of of, of the, the mission of the church since Jesus. This church predates the New Testament by decades, and it is the reason, in fact, we have the New Testament and the Bible in general. More on that next class. Throughout history, groups have split off because they wish to assert their own understanding of things as opposed to the church, and splitting off from the church is wrong, and it ultimately results in this splintering and, and, and fractioning of the church. There's two different types of fractioning. One of them is schismatics. Um, schismatics are, they usually deny what are arguably secondary concerns, and they, they retain valid sacraments. Principally, the schismatics are only the Eastern Orthodox um, who retained valid sacraments, and they've been in schism for about a thousand years at this point. Um, they retain valid sacraments. They usually just deny the primacy of Peter uh, and a few other things, like whether the the spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's called the, the filioque clause, uh, which is Latin for and the Son. Even though we see earlier Jesus breathes on them, says, receive the Holy Spirit. Whoever sends you, forgive or forgiven. Whoever sends you, retain or retain. So clearly the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son. Um, 
And then we have heretics. Now, I want to be careful when I talk about this one. Uh, heretics deny fundamental doctrinal issues and in the process lose some or all of the sacraments that are out there. And Protestants have traditionally been looked at as heretics, uh, but principally those who broke away initially, your, your Martin Luther's, your Calvin's, etc. Uh, and while it's true that they do hold heretical views on a number of issues, today the church recognizes that uh, many of them have never actively sought to break away from the church, and they don't even know what the church is. And therefore, the state of their separation, though grave, though, though, though problematic, is not a mortal sin. But if you know the church is the church and you break away, then you're choosing to go away from Christ. That's a mortal sin. The fruit of this, the practical upshot, is that today there are, by some accounts, over 33,000 different denominations, each claiming to correctly interpret the scriptures and to possess the most correct version of the truth, uh, usually, although sometimes they deny even that the truth is knowable. Um, and if that's off by a factor of 10 or even a factor of 100, that's still hundreds of competing denominations saying this is the truth, this is the truth, this is the truth, which goes all the way back up uh, to this right here, right? It's like, oh, no, right here. This is the one they got it right, as opposed to the one that has persisted throughout the entire time. I'll often liken this to um, a river running downstream, right? A river that flows from a mountain. The further towards the source of the water you get, the cleaner and the clearer the water is going to be. And so the things that are that are intrinsically a part of that, that water source, you're going to find um, you know, the further and further back you get, even as it gets polluted with things that don't belong there. So you'll find ideas like, for instance, we'll talk more about this next week, sola scriptura, the idea that everything must be found in the Bible and the Bible is our sole rule of faith. If you can't find that existing before 10, 7, or, uh, 15, 17 AD, um, that should tell you something, right? That it probably didn't originate back here. It probably was added later. And there's so many different other teachings you can find that, people just accept lock, stock, and barrel today. Um, but if you actually go back, you'll find that none of them are probably 500 years old uh, or less, you know, or if they were, they were part of a, of a heresy that died out like Arianism denying that Jesus is fully God uh, or one of the other heresies in, in the early church. Um, so the implication of what's all is again, there is only one church, a common phrase, a Latin phrase, extra ecclesium nulla salus means outside of the church. There is no salvation. It's a expression that comes from the writings of St. Cyprian of Carthage. I mentioned him above, um, the bishop of the third century. And it basically translates again to outside of the church. There is no salvation. This axiom is used as a shorthand for the doctrine that the, the church, Roman Catholic and Orthodox, um, both assert um, that the Catholic Church, the universal church, is absolutely necessary for salvation. The theological basis for this doctrine is founded on the Catholic belief that Jesus Christ personally established the Catholic Church, according to the Catholic interpretation of Matthew 16, 18, etc., um, and that the Church serves as the means by which the graces won by Christ are communicated to believers. Again, the Church is the dispenser of the sacraments. However, the church has taken various interpretations of this notion throughout history, and it does teach dogmatically that salvation may yet be attained by those who are not card-carrying members of the Catholic Church. It doesn't use the phrase card-carrying members. But, um, and again, this comes down to uh, what the church would call ignorance um, and, and the fact that you are not held responsible for what you don't know. Otherwise, God is not just and God is not merciful. But to be saved is to be a part of the body of Christ, and that body is the universal Catholic Church. Um, lastly, just a few thoughts. Um, factions and, and denominations were never a part of the plan. Um, if the kingdom of God is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand, says Jesus. Uh, Paul says, I hear there's divisions among you, and in part I believe it, for there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized. So the fact that there's heresy is what allows us to know what the true faith is. Um, and Paul says this, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, impure, um, disputes, dissensions, and factions. Um, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, uh, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And lastly, he says uh, to the Corinthians in Second Corinthians, I'm afraid that when I come, I will not find you as I want you to be, and that you will not find me as you want me to be, because he's angry with them. And I fear that there will be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. And so again, 
um, the idea of denominations simply is is not a part of the scriptural message. It's not a part of the Christian message. It's not a part of the gospel at the end of the day. It's just not. Uh, and the fact that we live in a time when there is so many different denominations, it makes it makes it makes Christianity seem um, inscrutably un unknowable, right? It's actually what kept me out of the church for, for many, many years is, well, well, which, which Christianity, right? Which Christianity should I believe? But if you, if you take a view, if you step back and look at it from a historical perspective, you'll find that there's only ever been one Christianity. And I'll leave you with a, a final word from Augustine. He says this, there are many things which most properly keep me in the Catholic church's bosom. The unanimity of the peoples and the nations keeps me here. Her authority inaugurated in miracles, nourished in hope and augmented by love and confirmed by her age keeps me here. The succession of priests from the very sea of the apostle Peter, to whom the Lord after his resurrection gave the charge of feeding his sheep up to the present episcopate keeps me here. And last, the very name Catholic, which not without reason belongs to this church alone in the face of so many heretics, so much so that although all heretics want to be called Catholic, when a stranger inquires where the Catholic church meets, none of the heretics would dare to point out his own basilica or house. He writes this against the Manichaeans. Um, so I love that. I mean, the, the very name Catholic itself is part of what keeps him in the Catholic Church. I hope that you found this helpful. Obviously, there's a lot to unpack here. And I actually have a secondary video um, from my previous version of notes this is the first time I've taught through these notes. I'll probably continue to make some changes and some tweaks to them. Um, but I wanted to make them again, uh, readable, I wanted to make them in a, in a format that was uh, more book like that you'd be able to kind of follow along with and, and, and follow along, obviously, with this video as well. Obviously, if you have any questions, feel free to leave a uh, note down below in the uh the comment section and that being said 